0: We've been following Jesus and his disciples on this road trip so far. Remember, they've been coming from Capernaum up in Galilee. I don't have my map here today, but they were up north in Galilee, and they started this road trip, and it says that Jesus was headed for Jerusalem. He set his eyes toward Jerusalem, and when he did that, they were on this road trip. They were on this trip to Jerusalem where Jesus knew where he was going, which would ultimately end up with him on the cross. But today, the road trip is over. They make it. They're finally at Jerusalem. They finally make it to where they were going for the last little while as we've been digging into Matthew. The road trip is over. So far, Jesus, yeah, he's created quite a stir up north in Galilee and in a few other places that he's visited and and healed people and preached the gospel of the kingdom. But for the most part, he's been pretty shy about the whole Messiah bit. Matthew has made it obvious for us, but Jesus himself, right, he's he's silenced people. He said, shh, don't call me the son of David. Just like I've healed you, just shh, be quiet about it, right? And so we've seen that up to this point. Um, but, of course, um, word gets out because people are being changed and encountering this Jesus person um, in dramatic fashion. And it's so much so that word is getting out that Jesus... More and more, he starts having run-ins with these guys called the Pharisees, and they're just grilling him, and he keeps we keep seeing this happen. And they, those arguments and those clashes keep ramping up. And then today, it's going to kick it up a notch, actually. Today, Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he enters Jerusalem as a king. He enters Jerusalem as a king to bring his upside-down kingdom that he's been talking about and that we've been talking about the whole time. And it happens in three dramatic scenes that we're going to look at and we're going to dive into today. And we're going to have to really put on our um, history hats a little bit today, and we're going to have to really dig into some of the Scripture today. Um, and, and I think not just because it's, it's really cool and it makes us feel good to know some cool stuff about the Bible, but because it shows us the depth of who Jesus is as we dive into this. So you're Ready? All right. Oh, all right. One person or two people are ready. Well, I'm ready. Let's dig into the scripture today, Matthew 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, "Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. That's interesting. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Or save us is what that means. Save us, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And so Jesus enters Jerusalem here, and he causes quite, quite a stir. Actually, that word there that says the city was stirred up, we often think being stirred up is, is kind of neutral, like there's, there's a stirring, right? Like you stir in your sleep. But the word that is used here is actually more like turmoil. There is like, there is just, it is, it is devastating the massive um, effect that people are stirred up by what is happening here because of Jesus entering Jerusalem. And it's all, this, this is a, a, an amazing epic scene, actually, just Jesus riding into town and all these people, and he gets this like impromptu red carpet, and it's all incredibly intentional. It's very intentional. Remember what we've said so far that Matthew draws out for us about Jesus? He's the fulfillment of so many Old Testament promises. And in this passage, we see that in, in a big way. Remember, if the Old Testament was the "but, da 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 da, Jesus is the? bop. Yeah, that's right. And so we get to look again today. It's been a little while since we've done a bit of a deep dive. We've looked at lots of practical things lately. We we're uh, we're going to do a bit of a deep dive into the scripture and what this passage in, has and holds in light of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. Jesus' intentionality as to the timing of everything, how he enters, and even where he goes and what he does is so very steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures. Everything is on purpose. It's amazing. Jesus, Jesus is amazing. Amen? Jesus is amazing. So why would we be surprised that this is amazing? Jesus enters uh, Jerusalem the week before the Jewish Passover celebration. It's the week of unleavened bread. Uh, in our calendars, it's, this would be Palm Sunday, the story we just read, and then it's the beginning of Holy Week leading up to Easter. But in Jesus' day, obviously, they didn't have that. He hadn't gone to the cross yet. This was an incredibly charged and probably the most important week of the year for uh, an Israelite as they remember their deliverance from Egypt and they they remember their covenant before Yahweh, God. Um, As as we get into this, it's important to note, archaeologists uh, have done a lot of digging in that area, and they estimate that around 50,000 people lived in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus entering, about 50,000 for a nice round number. Uh, 50,000 people lived in the city. But at Passover, an extra 150,000 pilgrims 150,000 people would come from all over Israel and they would come to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices for Passover. And so I don't know if some of you maybe have been in this, in this room when we've packed it out. Uh, I think this room is supposed to hold about 200-ish comfortably, and we've had upwards of 300 people in here. It gets really uncomfortable, doesn't it? It gets really uncomfortable. This town that was meant to have 50,000, now all of a sudden it has 200,000 people, and there's camps all outside the walls of Jerusalem, and that's what's happening here. This is just painting a picture of this is a real story and, and real life that is happening for these people. And so they're crammed in here, and Jesus comes into this just epic scene, and it's full of people traveling to the temple And he and his disciples are causing crazy excitement. Like, it is just going crazy. So I have a picture of us. Of us? No, for us. This is not a picture of us. Um, And I'm sorry it had to be black and white, but we have a blue screen thing happening. So it loses some depth. But do you see the walls? Um, You can see the walls. And then you see that, like, dome building, that shiny dome building. Well, that dome, this is is today. Um, So... Jesus came it says he came over the Mount of Olives this is looking from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem so what you're looking at is Jerusalem this is the view that they would have seen and what you can see is if you look down near the bottom it is actually quite quite steep and it's and and so you would have to what you would have to do is you would have to come off of the Mount of Olives and you'd have to come down quite steep into the valley where the vineyards and and those types of uh, Farming places were, and then Jerusalem was actually up on a hill and the temple was at the highest place. So what they would have had to do was come down and then they would have been looking up at these walls in Jerusalem. Those walls that you see now, they're only about 600 years old. Um, they were rebuilt, but they're in the same place. Uh, and that, uh, that uh, domed um, building is now a mosque called the Dome of the Rock, and it's where the temple would have been. And actually, if you know your Bible, where it will be again someday. But that's a lesson for another time. Um, so from that place, they were coming over the Mount of Olives, and there's hundreds of thousands of people, and they're coming for this procession. So Jesus, he sends his guys ahead, to, and, and they arrange things just so they get into this little village, and, and they get this donkey and this colt, and it's just like the weirdest encounter. It's like they have this code word, and it's like, the Lord needs it. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, the Lord needs it. Go for it. I don't know how that all worked out. Either it's like a spy movie, or just like the Lord just let that owner of the donkey know, or Jesus arranged it. I don't know how that all works, but it's it's just a bizarre little instance that the disciples just obeyed that and went for it, and... Here's Jesus, he's got a donkey. And then these crowds, they notice Jesus on the donkey and they start shouting out, Hosanna, save us, son of David. Something big is happening here. They think for sure this guy is the Messiah. This is the guy to save us. And so they make this impromptu red carpet out of their cloaks. They took their jackets off, maybe their only jacket, and they laid it in the mud so that this Jesus guy could come into Jerusalem. These crowds thought that he is the real deal. He is the Messiah. And then finally, they're thinking, finally, this is where everything's going to change. Those Romans won't be able to oppress us anymore. We're going to overthrow their government. We're going to establish Israel as the the power in the world again, and we're going to have peace, and it's going to be good. That's what the people would have been thinking. But there's this epic scene And Jesus, he just embraces it, or so it seems. He embraces it. He doesn't tell them to stop this time. He rides in knowing exactly what he's doing, and he is seemingly very okay with declaring himself as king. Jesus says, I am king in this moment, and that's the first time he has made such a public statement like that. Has that been Jesus' way of reacting so far? No, he kept slipping away from crowds, right? And telling people to be quiet. But this time, this time it's different. And this time, it's incredibly calculated. He arranges this perfectly and announces his kingship over Israel. Because this all has deep meaning for Israel, all of this stuff. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, we have the story of King David. You guys know who King David is, right? We have the story of King David and and when King David is being reinstated because his son tried to overthrow him and take over the kingdom, King David is being reinstated as king and he comes down, guess what, mountain, the Mount of Olives. And he rides down this mountain headed towards the temple, riding on what? A donkey, his coronation being reinstated as king. King David Like the the big, like biggest, this is like Abraham Lincoln, George Washington of Israel, like the most important past leader. King David did this. And now Jesus is doing this. Even Solomon, uh, King David's son, in his coronation, when he became king in 1 Kings chapter 1, he rode his dad's donkey and he rode it on that same path as he was anointed king. So Jesus, he's rolling into town, and he knows exactly what he's saying. And the people would have noted this. They knew their scriptures. He says, I am king. I am king is what Jesus is saying here. But if Jesus is king, what did he mean by that? What did he mean by that? What was Jesus there to do? And what did the crowd think that he meant that he's king? I think it's obvious to us as we've read the scriptures that what Jesus thinks he is king is entirely different from what the people are expecting. And if we're honest, it's entirely different than what we would expect sometimes too. What was Jesus there to do? He was there to die on a cross. And yet the people were shouting, Hosanna, save us. That doesn't sound like a death march. It doesn't sound like he's going to a cross. It doesn't sound like that was their expectation. He said, come save us. It doesn't sound like a death march. It was a victory march in their minds. And little did they know it was actually both. And his death was a victory. I think it's such an obvious part of this as we read the story that Jesus' inauguration of his kingdom would not come as they expected. Jesus was making a big deal, and he was causing I think that he was quite intentional about causing an uproar in the city for many, many reasons. People were excited for a Messiah. They were really excited. They're the long-awaited Messiah. They'd lived in oppression for centuries. But as Jesus is riding in and lots of these folks are looking for a Messiah, there are others that are not okay with what he's doing. And so the city was in a turmoil for many different reasons. Jerusalem already had political and religious leaders. It did not go well with those guys. Not to mention Caesar, who was ruling over it all at the time. So this spectacle that he made, riding in, saying, I am king, that's a good way to get yourself killed. It's a very good way to get yourself killed very quickly in those days. And so that's scene one. That's scene one of Jesus entering Jerusalem. As we get into the next two sections, we see a side of Jesus that we don't actually talk about very often. We see some very intense and very shocking, actually, behavior from Jesus. It seems like it doesn't line up a whole lot with with some of the other things we see in in Matthew so far of Jesus. But it's completely in line with his role. As he enters the city, it's completely that way. What did the people call him when they came in? Do you remember? They called him son of David, the Messiah, and also prophet. They said, the crowd said, This is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee. And so, Jesus, in this passage, he takes up the mantle of prophet. And if you've ever read the prophets, I, I love the prophets. There, there's some, if you love just weird, cool stories and how God works uh, through people, read the prophets. They are just awesome. Uh, so Jesus, in this, in this passage, he takes up in this moment the mantle of prophet as he enters Jerusalem in, in the same way as of, of the Old Testament prophets. The prophets were someone who had a message from God for the people. Often it was corrective in nature, and sometimes God would get these guys, uh, these Old Testament prophets, to do incredibly shocking and weird things to get people's attention, and it was symbolic of what God was trying to say and God trying to get their attention. Isaiah, Isaiah in chapter 20, he, he has to walk around naked for a year. Did you know that? Isaiah had to walk around naked for a year as a symbol for how the Assyrian army was going to come and take Israelites uh, in God's judgment. And so that was Isaiah being a prophet. Ezekiel, he had to give himself a really bad haircut with a sword. And he had to go out in the street. And it's like street theater, this prophecy. And he threw his hair up and he was chopping it with the sword. And it was this, this picture of how Babylon was coming because Israel had wandered so far from God that Babylon was coming in, in judgment and that he was going to take Israel captive, that Babylon was coming. So if you knew Hebrew scripture, which most folks of these 200,000 folks would have, uh, you, you would have gotten the symbols and the points that were made there. You see how Jesus now takes this role of prophet and he uses a shocking symbolic behavior, because he has a message from God for Jerusalem as he comes in. He's going to have a message for God, from God, the God of Israel. The time was very short for the religious leaders of the day to respond to the kingdom invitation. The time was very short. It would only be a week till he goes to the cross. And so Jesus comes as a prophet, as many of the prophets had, and said, we have warned you, your time is drawing To an end. He saw it as over for them. So Jesus rides into the temple. He heads straight for the temple in this grand procession with all eyes on him. The gravity of this can't be overstated. This is like you went to the trouble of gathering a few thousand people and you just marched up on the front lawn of the White House and had an inauguration ceremony. I don't think the president would take kindly to that. I don't think his staff would take kindly to that. It is is that big of a deal. I mean, we think, yeah, that would get shut down pretty fast, but Jesus was actually doing this quite successfully. People were shouting at him, save us. They thought he was the Messiah. So this isn't going to go well in the end with the existing staff, is it? It's not going to go well. Nobody asked Jesus to be king at this point. Nobody's asked him to do this. He is making himself king. He is allowing this to happen. And so with that, we're going to read on to what we'll call scene two today as Jesus comes to the temple. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer. That's from Isaiah. But you make it a den of robbers. And that's from the prophet Jeremiah as he's quoting scripture. We're going to revisit that. That's why I mentioned that. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, well, yeah, I can hear them. Or, yes. Have you guys read your Bibles? Jesus does this to them all all the time. You remember? It's like, oh, these are are Bible experts. Have you never read Out of the Mouth of Infants and Nursing Babies you have prepared praise? I think that's Psalm 8. Leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany. Just, 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 East of, of Jerusalem. So he, he, he does this massive thing in the temple and then he withdraws and he goes and spends the night in Bethany. End scene two. The whole city is in an uproar and all the attention is on Jesus. And he heads straight away for the center of Israel's life and culture in the temple. And what does he do there? He gets angry. Jesus gets angry, and this is a side of Jesus that we don't see or talk of often. Honestly, Jesus goes on a bit of a rampage. In the Gospel of John, it says that he actually made a whip, and people were running. He's flipping tables, but not everyone went running. Who was there? Who who was there? The blind and the lame and children were there. Did you notice that? The blind, lame kids were coming to him, and he was incredibly kind, and he was healing them. So it's not that he's changed it all, but he is angry about something here. The leaders and the money changers, they, he was upset at what they were doing, and they were not pleased with Jesus in this moment. Have you ever traveled to another country? What's the first thing you do when you get to the country? or normally. Kiss the tarmac because you're thankful you made it there. No, you usually go and exchange your money for the money of the land, right? So money changes are not a, are not a bad thing. It's the same thing, right? You go to the exchange booth and you get the currency of the country that you're in. And then what are those fees and those exchange rates like when you do that? You always feel a little gouged, don't you? You always feel a little gouged. Well, it was kind of like that, but even worse with these guys, okay? Um, it, it can feel like you're being gouged and taken advantage of, but this was obvious. 150,000 people were visiting Jerusalem for the Passover, and they were needing to make sacrifices to God in the temple. And they didn't want to carry, like, little lamby from, from Galilee all the way with them, so they would bring money, and they would exchange money for their offering. That's how the system worked. And so in that system, there needed to be money changers. There needed to be a system that was happening. And that's, that's totally fine. Um, but if that's needed, then why was Jesus so upset? Like these guys were providing a service so that people could worship. Why, why was he so upset? Where were the money changers? in the temple. That's right. They were not supposed to be in the temple. I have another picture here today. That's the temple, or a 3D rendering of the temple, because there were no drone shots back then. Um, but you can see the temple. The middle, the middle part there is the, is the inner courtyard. The, the part with the red roof uh, you see kind of on the side there, that's called the portico of Solomon. That's where all of this was happening, uh, where Jesus uh, was doing this. You can see the, the altars in the big courtyard. That's where the sacrifices would be happening. And so this is where they are. There's this big kind of, uh, por- it's the portico of Solomon, but it's just this, this colonnade kind of roofed structure that these money changers were hanging out in. Um, these guys were never supposed to be there. The temple was for prayer and sacrifice and worship. But we know Caiaphas, he's the high priest uh, at the time. We're going to meet him in a couple more weeks. Uh, Caiaphas, who's the high priest, he moved these money guys into the temple. So there's a pretty recent renovation that happened. Caiaphas moved the money changers into the temple, and he was also lining his pockets as well. So Caiaphas is making money off of this move, and the money changers are as well. And so Jesus comes into the temple of God, the God that he calls Father. The God that's supposed to be a house of prayer and worship and seeking God. And he sees some changes, and he sees some renovations that has happened, and he is not happy about it. He is not happy. And then he starts flipping tables. But do you remember what tables he, he flipped? Which ones? What, what was the animal that he went for? Pigeons or doves, depending on your translation? And if you know your Old oh, so much Old Testament, it's awesome. If you know your Old Testament, in Leviticus, if you didn't have enough money for a lamb, if you didn't have those types of resources, God would accept from you an offering of a dove or a pigeon. So this was the offering of the poor. This was the offering of the poor. And Jesus goes straight for those guys who are gouging the poor in order to allow them to worship God in the way that they did. You see, like, the depth of what Jesus is doing here? Business was being done instead of prayer. The poor are being taken, taken advantage of by the wealthy and the religious leaders, and it's all happening in God's house. And Jesus is not okay with that. The poor were being gouged simply so that they could come and sacrifice and worship. And Jesus is very angry, and this is an injustice, and he makes a big display about it. Remember, prophet, king, Jesus, he makes this big, shocking display and gets people's attention, just like the prophets have done for ages and ages before. And so like a prophet, he quotes scripture to leaders who knew the scripture in and out. He said to them, "It is written." So that's he's he's talking about the Hebrew scriptures. My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you made it or make it a den of robbers. So we come back here. Uh, the first part, he's quoting from Isaiah 56. This, my house shall be called the house of prayer. And as these Pharisees are listening to Jesus' quote from Isaiah 56, they have the whole context of what's happening in Isaiah 56 in their heads. And so in Isaiah chapter 56, it describes the temple, and it describes this temple as this meeting place between heaven and earth. And it also says that Israel was called then, because of the temple, to be a light to the nations. And it doesn't seem like that's the case here. And so Jesus is calling that out with this scripture. And then this piece of den of robbers, but you made it, make it a den of robbers. That comes from Jeremiah chapter 7. And so those who were listening, because they knew they had literally had this, this, this Old Testament memorized, uh, they would have thought of Jeremiah 7, this den of robbers line. And when you know the context, it becomes glaringly obvious what Jesus is up to. And we're just going to read it because I think it speaks for itself today. So Jeremiah chapter 7. It's on the screen unless you want to look it up in your Bible. But The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. And say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Amend or change your ways and your deeds. And I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They were trusting in this, in this temple. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We're delivered! only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. You see what Jesus is doing there. People would have exactly remembered why Jeremiah was calling them a den of robbers. They were leaning on the temple as their safe place. Look, we have the temple. Everything must be good. Everything's fine. But reading on from there in Jeremiah, Babylon is coming and the temple will be utterly destroyed because of Israel's sin. And so what do you think that the priests were thinking as Jesus says this scripture? What do you think they would have been thinking? Jesus is coming as king. He says he's he's basically declared himself as king. He marches up to the temple, and then he's going to say the temple's going to be destroyed. End scene two. And you have to go to scene three, which we're going to get to right now. Scene three. We keep reading in Matthew, starting at verse 18. In the morning, so he was out in Bethany, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry Seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And so now we're just like, what? (laughs) What just happened? Jesus just hates trees all of a sudden? Like, how does this even fit with what's going on? Well, this is prophet, King Jesus, at his finest, as he enacts more dramatic, prophetic words from God, now this time to only his smaller group of disciples. We remember All that just happened in this super weird story we just see now is just Jesus hating on fruit trees. If you see a tree, first of all, that is full of leaves, and the season is right, and it's a fruit tree, what do you look for? Fruit! Yeah, of course! Like those BC cherries that I miss a lot. Uh, They're just like, if there's full of leaves, you're just going to go and check and see if there's some fruit. But in this instance, Jesus, he goes to this tree, and it's full of leaves, and it looks like it's full of life, but there's no fruit. It looks like it's full of life, but it's fruitless. And then he curses this tree. And as he curses this tree, it's a prophetic act for his disciples to see. He is showing the gravity of this situation with the temple. Many times in Scripture, this exact imagery is used to describe Israel as a fruitless tree. There's six or seven times in the Old Testament prophets that uses that imagery that Israel has become a fruitless tree. And so Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed because God planted it, but it has no fruit. And just to prove it to you, we're going to look at one. Micah chapter three. Hear this, rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Sound familiar? Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is it not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster should come come upon us. Or to use the other language, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Everything's fine. It's here. We're good. God loves us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins a few chapters later, woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. There's leaves, but there's no fruit. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. The day of your watchmen, of your punishment, has come. Jesus' prophetic plan in, his, in this passage uh, as we see him curse a fig tree, is is brilliant. It's brilliant, and it's so steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, and and I love that we get to dig into that. He's communicating that just like what happened to Israel before. Dist-